You're listening to The Jay Barker Show on Tide 100.9 in Tuscaloosa. Matt Coulter, a former Alabama Broadcaster of the Year and longtime media personality, and Christian Miller, a national championship winning linebacker at Alabama who was drafted by the Carolina Panthers. Here's Lars, Matt, and Christian. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the morning, guys. I'll get to the point. I'm retiring. Right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I uh, won't be long-winded. I think you only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. So uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever, there's too many. Um, Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. There you go, you heard it. Straight from the goat's mouth, Tom Brady is retiring. This time, he says, it's for good. Last night, coming back from a basketball game, I did, and I started getting a couple of notes here and a couple of notes there. And then by the time I got up this morning, we have a show so full that we don't have have, uh, room for another slice of pie. Brady retires. D'Amico Ryans is going to the Houston Texans. Sean Payton going to Denver. And I hadn't even gotten to the 57-point blowout that Lars predicted, Alabama over Vanderbilt. Now, even though you predicted it would be a blowout, I don't think you thought it would be a record-breaking SEC Crimson Tide win. No. No, I, no, I did not. Uh, and I, I thought Jerry Stackhouse just he acquitted himself so well after the game. You know, a young female reporter sort of just asked, "What happened out there?" And, you know, there probably is a more gentle way <laughs> that that could have been phrased. But instead of going off, he just very patiently said, wrong team, wrong night. <laughs> and, you know, Alabama, that uh, they were coming off a, a hard loss. They hadn't been shooting the ball well lately. And they're too talented to keep playing like that. And, uh, you know, we were just on the business end. And But, but you know, the, the more... I see Jerry Stackhouse as a as the coach. The more I like Me him. Me too, because it would have been real easy, and I'm not. I don't think I could have held back. Uh, you know, put the brakes on somehow, some way. I mean, I don't care if you roll the managers out there. Um, that's embarrassing. National media pundits are going. That's just embarrassing. It shouldn't happen. But Stackhouse handles it with class. Takes the high road. Uh, you know, goes back to Nashville. One other story, Lars, that I didn't mention. It is the first Wednesday in February. So what does that mean? Mm, National Signing Day number two. This used to be a huge day. Rodney Orr from Tider Insider is going to join us and and talk about that and several other things. Uh, Rodney, how are you doing today? Matt and Lars, I'm doing really well. How are you guys? 
Um, Terrific. I mean, a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and I, I think I would be remiss because we're all sports fans if I just didn't give you an opportunity here to talk about Brady, his retirement. Uh, first of all, Rodney, let me ask you something. What were you doing in 2000? That's the year he signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 23 years ago, people. All my kids were still in my house. For goodness, <laughs> I was still a nester. Uh, do you remember what you were doing in 2000? I know you it's were doing tighter things. That, that was uh, pre 9/11. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> good point. I, I certainly remember watching him carve up Alabama in that Orange Bowl. Uh, you know, I still see him throwing to. Uh, you, we were talking about Tom Brady to uh, uh, David Terrell and Milo Lewis, the Alabama corner, who was a really good player. Uh, I don't know if he had heard about Tom Brady before then, but that's something he can always, I guess, uh, <laughs> share with people because, I mean, it was uh, – if you remember that game, Alabama was in control of that game up by a couple of touchdowns twice in the second half, and Tom Brady just brought them back. Little did we know uh, what we were getting a preview of. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I I have his draft story, and I, I'm going to share it in detail. I, I wrote about it in a season uh, on a season in the Sun, uh, my last book. But um, d- did you ever think Brady was going to be as good as he was when you saw him play in college? No, I mean even that night. I mean he. I don't even think he started the game. Uh, didn't Drew Henson start the game? I can't remember as a quarterback think, from yeah, Michigan. I, I know they alternated. Both teams alternated quarterbacks. Alabama's Al Watts, and I think Kent, Drew Henson started that game for Michigan, and, and Brady came off the bench. And uh, But, no, I mean, I, I didn't have any idea. I mean, <laughs> what did he get? I don't even remember what round he was drafted in. Was it the fifth or sixth, sixth. something like but that? But nobody yeah. knew he was going to be this good. Yeah, yeah. And, nobody. And, but. But I just remember that night, it was just, uh, you know, he carved Alabama up in the second half. Let's uh, let's run through recruiting, albeit I don't know that there's a whole lot of news. Let me just start by asking a very broad question. Is there any news? And I want to get it straight from Rodney Orr. Did Alabama end up, or will they end up signing nine five-star? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, um, I do believe it's one of the better classes they've had in a while. Um, and I'm not just talking about talent-wise. I think there's a lot of kids in this class that, that remind me of some of the classes they brought in before where they had great leadership. Um, you know, I really think this class has that, along with the talented players. Um, you know, so I, I look at just about every position. You know, offensive line. They did a really good job on the defensive line. They got two two great players and, and two guys that I think can can be developed uh, into good players. You look at linebacker. I think they got four you know top notch linebackers. You look in the secondary. They got a mixture of some corners and safeties. Uh, two great running backs. Uh, wide receiver. I think they helped themselves there. They signed four guys that. I, I think are really good, in, including the number one JUCO player in the country, Malik Benson at a Hutchison Community College up in Kansas, who is a legit 10-4 burner. Uh, he, and he's not just a speed guy. I think he's got all the tools to go with it. Um, you know, they got a t- tight end. Plus, they got the, the, the transfer tight end from Maryland, who I think is going to make an immediate impact. And, and two quarterbacks that I think can be developed into really, really good players. So I think 
overall, I think this is really this is one of the better classes, and they obviously you know they've had some really good classes here of late, but I think this kind of matches some of those previous, uh, maybe in the you know 2017 and those types that that had a tremendous amount of leadership. The name that I keep hearing of the player who is going to have the biggest impact right away is Caleb Downs. Uh, do you agree with that? And and who do you think, or can you give us a couple of names of guys who really could uh, play key roles as early as next season? Well, I think Downs, yeah, definitely. I, I think he's a Minka Fitzpatrick type player, and what I mean by that is kind of what I was alluding to the the leadership that he has, uh, the uh, incredibly natural football player i mean can just do so many different things just like minka could and he has that same mindset that same mentality same level of maturity that i think minka came in with so i think caleb downs is a five star all the way around i i would certainly agree with you uh i think he can make a major impact next year and and you know just as far as you know other guys uh, you know you let's start on the offensive line i think caden proctor the five-star offensive tackle who could play interior as well you know, certainly could do that and may get an opportunity to do that. I think the local kid, um, Wilkin Formby, is a guy that's going to be really, really good in time. Uh, he's just scratching the surface. He's only six foot seven and three quarters and 325 pounds, 17 years old. You just said only. Only, only, only. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. I think Wilkin's got a lot of, you know, uh, potential just beginning to scratch. And again, he brings that, that leadership that drive, that, that type of mentality that you want in your program. Uh, you know, on the defensive line, I think James Smith might be one of the best interior defensive linemen in the country out of Montgomery. And then Jordan Renaud is a guy that doesn't get a lot of publicity. Uh, it didn't get as much publicity until later in the recruiting process. He's out of the state of Texas. And he is a, he, I'm telling you, remember the name Jordan Bernard. He is going to eventually be a really, really good player. As far as next year, you know, like Keon Keeley, I think he has a chance to come in and, and possibly, you know, make an impact early next year at that outside linebacker spot. Yeah, he was, he's, I guess, if you go by some of the recruiting services, he, he's a number two player in the country right now. So, uh, you know, he's certainly one. And, and I'll say this one too. Because I could go through several, but Justice Haynes, and I, and I know they're that they've got a really good running back room. Obviously, you got Jace back and Roy Dell, and I think Jamarian Miller, the big freshman from last year, is going to be really, really good. But Justice Haynes is going to be a special, special player, I think, at the running back position. Based on your analysis of the two quarterbacks who are going to be fighting for the starting position uh, next season, Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson, based on your analysis of them coming out of high school, and you're still close, and you're close to the program, and what you're hearing, who do you think is going to be the guy, the the starter for Alabama next year? Well, I think that's a great question. But here's the the problem with. Is, is Ty just doesn't have much experience. So how's he going to respond? I think this spring's going to be interesting to watch him. But I do think Ty has all the tools. I think he's a great passer. 
He's got a very strong arm, very smart. He's athletic. He can move around really well. He can make throws kind of like Bryce from different angles. Uh, he's very creative. You know, I, I, I think Ty Simpson has all the tools. Now, Milrow, on the other hand, just an absolute freak of an athlete. I mean, you know, he's, he's probably the best athlete on the Alabama squad right now. He's, you know, 6'2 plus, he's 220 pounds and, and probably runs a consistent 4440. So, you know, again, I think it's just going to have to play out in the spring and, and as you move forward into fall camp. My opinion, they got to figure out a way whether it's Ty, if it's Ty Simpson at quarterback, they got to get Milrow. <laughs> They got to get him in a slot or running back or something because he is as talented as they get. Rodney, how do people find you? Tighterinsider.com. It's only $48 a year. You can get instant access with your credit card, or if you prefer, there's an address there to send a check. Gives you all our premium information, but also our all sports forum. That's our community of Alabama fans. As we say, it never really stops there at tighterinsider.com. Great stuff. I know you're busy. Thank you for giving us your time. Okay, guys, appreciate it. Take care. You bet. Tom Brady, retired. What's it going to be opening the NFL without 12? We'll talk about that with Cole Thompson and, of course, D'Amico Ryan. He's a Houston guy. We'll talk about that as well on Big Noon Sports. From T-Town to the Plains. This is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. The best sports talk in the state. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Ask Big. Have you seen our artisan-created diamonds? If you've been in a room with one, you can't miss it. Tom Osmond from Fincher and Osmond. It's low 40. Tomorrow, another cloudy day, a soaking rain by afternoon, the high 51. And a brighter day Friday, mostly sunny, the high 48. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 43 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back into Big Noon Sports. Matt Coulter along with Lars Anderson. Christian is taking care of some University of Alabama football business as we speak. So uh, he'll be back with us tomorrow for certain. Uh, We have been talking about everything that's going on, and it's a lot. And right now we're going to be welcomed by Fan Nation's Cole Thompson and a former student of one Lars Anderson, a professor at the University of Alabama in their journalism school. Uh, Cole, a uh, lot to talk about. Where do we start? we got to start with D'Amico Ryans. Were you surprised by this announcement? I don't think many of us were. In a sense, yes. There was, of course, the situation that occurred in 2014 where Ryans sued the Texans organization due to the fact that he was uh, slide uh, money from the team after suffering its torn Achilles at NRG Stadium. And many people believe that that soured the relationship between the McNair family and the likes of D'Amico Ryans. But Over the past week, there were conversations internally within the building of bringing back stability and bringing back a certain culture with Houston that had been missing for quite some time. Even in the Bill O'Brien era, people believed that culture was never truly set 
and the fact that Gary Kubiak was pretty much the only coach that really brought this type of fire and tenacity inside the building made it clear that they wanted to go back to that type of style. That was when the Texans were at their best, and that was when the Texans had D'Amico Ryans as the leader in the locker room. I think a lot of people forget that before J.J. Watt stepped foot on NRG Stadium, D'Amico Ryans was the key top defensive player that really ran Houston. He was the 2006 Rookie of the Year. A season later, he became an All-Pro. He worked in both a 3-4 and a 4-3 system underneath uh, Wade Phillips, who came out earlier this past week and said there was no doubt in his mind that at some point D'Amico was going to be a head coach. And there's many a name out there that believed at this point in their career uh, D'Amico was going to get a head coaching job. It was very interesting to see how the Texans really pushed forward with him over the past week. Uh, but it was also very interesting to see D'Amico Ryan, a coach who had multiple options, one was being looked at by the Carolina Panthers, was being looked at by the Arizona Cardinals, being looked at by the Denver Broncos, chose Houston, a team that is going through massive rebuilds, has massive implications, has massive uh, holes on its roster, to truly go back to where it all began when there were other options out there, other options that also likely would have paid top dollar. It only shows you that he truly does believe in what the future holds for this organization, and sometimes home is where the heart is, and it does feel nice to see him back in Houston where it all began. All right, Cole. All right, Cole. All right, Cole. Sorry about that. Uh, this is a little bit inside baseball, but um, so Ian Rappaport yesterday tweets out that the Broncos spent the entire day trying to hire D'Amico Ryans uh, before he recommitted to the Texans, according to sources. Well, those sources obviously came, my guess, is from the Texans. And then, of course, Adam Schefter can't be outdone. Uh, 15 minutes later, he tweets out, and this has got to be a source from the Broncos because the Broncos don't want to look like uh, they're taking sloppy seconds here, uh, said that the timing of today two hires were completely coincidental. Broncos were zeroed in on Sean Payton the whole time and, uh, and didn't make any contact this week with D'Amico Ryans or his agent. Uh, so clearly uh, these guys are just being used by the organizations. But Here's the here's the point. Let, let's say I'm inclined to go with Rappaport. Okay, why is the Texans' job more appealing than the Broncos' job? So I had a couple conversations over the weekend, and it doesn't feel like either report is wrong. What it feels like is that Rappaport did have a little bit of an inside knowledge. Multiple people I had reached out to in the Denver market area said that the team did make a late push for D'Amico Ryans, but Ryans had declined an interview on Monday afternoon. It wasn't, but before that, he actually declined an interview throughout the week. So it wasn't on Tuesday that they had this conversation. It was more so on Monday afternoon that they had this conversation. And ultimately, they led to the eventual hiring of Sean Payton. There's three things that really stand out when you look at the Texans' job over Denver. There is a clean slate. Houston has won 11 games in the last three years. You cannot expect anybody to come into the building and say, I am going to work with the current ownership, with the current front office, and only get the minimal results that we've seen. I want to bring in a little bit more stability. I want to have a little bit more say. And it was really intriguing to see how Ryan's agent, Jimmy Sexton, worked through a deal on a six-year contract in very similar fashion to what Kyle Shanahan 
his mentor and predecessor at San Francisco got when he was hired by the Atlanta Falcons in 2017. I thought the other thing that was really important was that you look at the salary cap structure. Houston has $41 million in space this offseason. That ranks fifth most in the NFL. Currently, the Denver Broncos have roughly about $12 million in salary cap space because starting this year, they will have to pay Russell Wilson his beginning of $250 million on the five-year contract. But it's more so than that. In 2024, the Texans have over $100 million in cap space. And more players from the New York Jets and the San Francisco 49ers, players who at one point had a relationship and a rapport with D'Amico Ryans, will be on the open market. These are names that are going to be highlight players that are going to be a pretty, that are going to cost you a pretty penny, but can elevate your roster pretty immediately. The third thing is the draft capital. In Denver, you are stuck with Russell Wilson, not just through 2023, but through 2024. Everyone that I spoke to said that every candidate that walked into the building with Denver was told by ownership, was told by George Payton, Russell Wilson is your starting quarterback. You have to make it work with him. You have to be able to build a rapport. You have to be able to have that consistency. We are all bent in on Russell being the guy. And maybe Russell will pan out. Maybe last season was a fluke. You do look at how things ended last year after the firing of Nathaniel Hackett. He did look a little bit more like himself, but the let Russ cook thing needs to be more so let Russ just go ahead and do quick, easy passes and build that rapport and consistency with the receivers. Where in Houston, you can do whatever really you want. You have nine picks in the top 100 over the next two draft classes. There's a highlight quarterback by the name of Bryce Young that's going to be on the market. C.J. Stroud really proved against Georgia. He can handle the NFL-style defenses. If you really like Will Anderson at number two, you can always go ahead and draft a quarterback at number 12 or move up. Uh, not only that, if you don't believe in the quarterback class this year, you can do a one-and-done with maybe a Baker Mayfield, with maybe a uh, maybe a likes of a Sam Darnold or even a Derek Carr if you're willing to spend the money. Wait until next year and go get a guy like USC's Caleb Williams. Go get a guy like uh, UNC's Drake May, and then really build your roster that way. It is interesting because you do have a defensive-minded coach, and defensive-minded coaches usually want to go address their side of the football before they bring in an offensive uh, an offensive personnel member. But the other big thing is that there's no expectations in Houston. When you look at Denver's job, Denver is going to expect results. They paid for all these free agents last year. They paid for all these names in the open market, and they barely got five wins. In Houston, they understand that they are going to take a few years to get back on track. Look at the Detroit Lions, who hired a former player that was on their staff in Dan Campbell. Last season, they got the number two overall pick. This past year, they were fighting for a playoff spot. Now the expectation is, how do we go from not being a playoff contender in the NFC North but a playoff contender in the NFC. That's because of the belief that you have in the locker room. That's because of what players are seeing inside of the likes of Dan Campbell's mind. And that is what Dan Campbell brings to the table. Ultimately, I think those are major factors that make Houston a better job, not just for Tamika Ryans, but really for any coach looking to get hired in the market this offseason. Okay, Cole, really quick. We're very, very short on time. Uh, what do you think uh, they do at number two? Do they go at the, the number two uh, overall pick in the first round? Do they go um, Do they go quarterback? Do they go Bryce Young? Do they go Stroud? What is, uh, what's your crystal ball? Again, we're really short on time here. 
if you can find a way to move up into the top 10 from number 12 and maybe go after a quarterback like Anthony Richardson and then get a, get a Jalen Carter from Georgia or Will Anderson from Alabama, that's what I would do. But if you can't do that, you have to go into this season with a quarterback. I think both Bryce Young and T.J. Stroud are excellent options. I would not be shocked to see one of them in a Texas uniform if they don't go number one to whoever moves up and switches spots to Chicago. Cole Thompson, Fan Nation. How do folks follow you on Twitter and uh, other platforms as well? Make sure you download the podcast, Just Saying It, on Audio Boom, iTunes, Spotify, and whatever else you get a podcast listening system. And you can always check out my work at, at Mr. Cole Thompson on Twitter. Thank you, Cole. Great stuff. Thanks, Cole. Take care, guys. Hey, when you bet. When we get back, we'll talk some UAB sports. And, uh, they're recruiting and signing today as well, and UAB has an maybe the biggest game of the year uh, as Ford Atlantic comes into Bartow tomorrow night. You're listening to Big Noon Sports. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Hey, listener, welcome to Lemu's Karaoke Lounge, where Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance so you only pay for what you need, and the music never stops. I'm gonna miss her when I get home. But right now I'm on this lake shore, and I'm Welcome back into Big Noon Sports. Lars, Matt, Christian. Taking care of some duties in Tuscaloosa concerning the Alabama football program. Certainly, we welcome that. We also welcome in Evan Dudley of AL.com. Handles a lot. He's a beat writer for UAB. Let's just put it right there. Uh, Evan, it's Matt and the gang. How are you today? Uh, doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to tomorrow night's game. In fact, I'm, I'm grabbing the grandkids and headed down there. Um, Florida Atlantic comes into town, and I'm not sure people actually know what that means. Florida Atlantic is ranked number 19 in the nation. They're 21-1. and one. I said earlier, and I'll ask you, is it safe to say this might be the biggest game the UAB plays this season? Uh, at this moment, yes, it will be, uh, absolutely. You know, they had a, a couple of really good non-conference games early in the season, uh, had a neutral side against Georgia, uh, had South Carolina at home, went on the road to West Virginia, but this one right now uh, is easily the most important. Uh, it's against a ranked opponent. Uh, it's a conference opponent. Uh, it's a quad one, uh, you know, opportunity for the Blazers. Uh, you know, who lost, you know, five of their uh, five of six, uh, you know, right after starting conference play, three and zero. So you know, this is a team that's kind of started to rebound. They've been without their top score. Hopefully, they get him back tomorrow night. Uh, but this is this is really a big game for this team to kind of really prepare itself uh, going into conference tournament time uh, later in the season. What will it take for the Blazers to make the NCAA tournament? And and at this point, it seems kind of like a long shot. But uh, what what what's your assessment? Uh, well, I mean, this team has the talent to win Conference USA. Uh, you know, as it stands right now, they'll more than likely will have to win their conference tournament. Uh, maybe early in the season, Conference USA had a opportunity to maybe have a uh, you know a two bid league uh, with FAU and UAB, possibly even North Texas. But uh, North Texas has lost games. UAB, uh, you know, they hit this little skid. So right now, it's gonna it's gonna come down to probably win the conference tournament. But their most important issue has been their defense this season. They've been able to score points uh, even without Jelly Walker, but you know, obviously that adds a 
a lot more scoring to this team. But their on-ball defense has been a problem. But we kind of saw that turn this past weekend at Ross. Uh, they held Ross scoreless the first eight minutes of the game. Uh, I don't think they made it more than uh, 30 points in the first half. So, you know, this is a uh, a team that's, you know, started to turn it around on the defensive end, which is where they kind of uh, – Prided, prided themselves on uh, uh, last year. But, uh, you know, that team kind of has run through Jelly Walker. Uh, he's been injured. It's a foot tissue issue. <laughs> um, how is he? Because I I read between the lines of one of your articles, it kind of said Andy wants that guy back. It's just it was kind of Jelly Walker's call. How Did I read that wrong? Uh, no, uh, it has been a uh, uh, Jelly's uh, kind of call right now. Uh, the doctors have cleared him to, uh, to return to uh, you know play to practice and everything, but it's more of just a uh, dealing with pain issue, and maybe not even kind of you know wanting to bring him back, or maybe he doesn't want to get back too soon. Uh, he wants to make sure he's one hundred percent. You know, there's no hesitation. You know, when pivoting on a foot or uh, you know putting pressure on that foot. You know, it, it's something that he just needs to feel more comfortable with. But also, you know, within uh, the, their current uh, status of, you know, more than likely having to win their conference tournament, it's not a bad idea for him to, you know, remain on the bench. But I would like to think that, uh, you know, he's going to try as much as he can to play in this game Thursday, considering the uh, uh, the ramifications, you know, with a you know a ranked team coming in, a quad one uh, opportunity at home. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, safe to say that, you know, there's a probably about a 50-50 chance he'll play tomorrow night. But uh, once again, it is going to be his call as he just deals with the pain issue. Switching to UAB football, uh, before we get into recruiting and, and how uh, Trent Dilfer was able to put together uh, his recruiting class uh, at a very late juncture, um, what's what have your impressions been of Dilfer since he was hired? Uh, much like, uh, you know, with Andy Kennedy when he first came, uh, first came back to UAB, uh, you know, he's really excited the fan base. Uh, you know, he's been out there, he's meeting, uh, he's greeting, uh, you know, Andy wasn't able to maybe meet as greet as much, uh, cause obviously that was during the pandemic time, but, uh, you know, Trent's been able to bid out there, uh, you know, uh, he's, he was at a basketball game only a few weeks ago. They're going to have a, uh, an official meet and greet. Uh, after signing day, uh, where, you know, uh, fan base can actually meet the coaches, uh, you know, they'll talk about their recruiting class. So, you know, he's done the things to kind of involve himself in this community. And I think just him understanding, uh, you know, where this UAB program, uh, kind of came from, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, revitalization, uh, you know, it's a, it's Phoenix story, if you will. And so he understands the foundation that was built from that. I think through that, he's excited this fan base. And I think, uh, you know, this is something that I think that, you know, he, you know, this wasn't something he was going to mess around with, you know, when he chose a college job, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of people would probably criticize, oh, he's a high school coach, you know, you know, what's he going to know coming into college football division one as his first job. Uh, but, you know, he's really, uh, you know, hit the ground running. He's hired good people around him. Uh, he's retained a few good uh, people within that program as well that's kind of helped build this foundation the past few years. So he's doing the things right right now, and, uh, you know, what we're really going to see is after this recruiting class when it comes down to the coaching and developing of these players. How do you feel like he did as a first-year uh, college football coach recruiting? I think he did uh, amazing, actually. Uh, you know, for a guy who has never recruited uh, on the college level, you know, he brought in 16 on early signing day. Uh, as of right now, I think they got about five or six uh, that have signed this morning. Uh, a few more will be coming in this uh, this afternoon. They uh, went to the portal, got about 
uh, 10 to 12 guys out of the portal, kind of recoup their own losses uh, from the transfer portal. And he brought in guys, uh, you know, with backgrounds in Alabama. You look at A.D. Diamond uh, from Auburn, Desmond Warsham, who signed with Miami but played with Auburn. Uh, you know, uh, Desmond Little, uh, linebacker at LSU, who played uh, at Viger. So, you know, these, he's got some guys that's been playing some P5 and bringing them back home to the state, uh, as well as just getting some, you know, some good talent, uh, you know, out of that transfer portal. And, you know, this is a guy who, you know, worked with the Elite 11 camp. You know, he ran that thing. Uh, you know, he's kind of the head coach of the of the teams there. So, you know, he has had some experience with recruiting, and I think that's what's uh, paying off for him is just knowing that one side of the recruiting, uh, almost like a, an objective third party uh, from, from his perspective when he was at Elite 11. What style of offense uh, do you anticipate that uh, Trent is going to run uh, based on what he, you saw in high school and, and just how different will it be, will UAB look on the offensive side of the ball next season or this coming season than last year? I think they'll uh, they'll be opened up a little bit more. Uh, what you can see from recruiting, they have uh, signed a lot of wide receivers, but they've also signed a lot of offense and defensive guys, so uh, offensive linemen. So I think the you know they're going to want to run the ball. You know that's you know Trent is an old school guy, so he understands running the ball is uh, very important. But also he's a quarterback. Uh, you know he ran the uh, you know the premier quarterback uh, uh, camp around the country for several years. So you know this is a guy who wants to he's going to want to air it out some. So I think it's going to be a uh, you know a lot of coaches talk about balanced offense, but I think Trent's really going to want to try to do that. Uh, he retained Hen- uh, Henley Brigham, the running backs coach uh, at UAB. He retained him. Uh, this guy who's produced, uh, obviously, Debo McBride, Spencer Brown, Jermaine Brown. This guy who's been producing some really good backs uh, who uh, are really great runners. So he held on to him, and I think you know that's going to mean you know they're going to they're going to keep running the ball as UAB has been known, but they're also very much going to open up the offense. Uh, just looking at the receivers, the QBs they brought in. Uh, you know, I, I believe this offense is uh, really going to kind of take flight these next couple of years. Doug, um, how, how do people find you? Uh, they can find me Twitter at Dudley Dewrot, A-L, right as in W-R-I-T-E. Uh, you can find the website, al.com forward slash UAB. All right, I got to ask you, do you remember Dudley Dewrot, R-I-G-H-T? I absolutely do. Uh, I was born in '83, so uh, in a small town in North Alabama. So uh, the '80, the '70s uh, were still kind of there in '83 for us. Uh, the the '80s didn't really get there until like '85, '86. So uh, yes, I, I grew up with Rocky Evan. Bull. I, I grew up Rocky Bullwinkle, so I remember all the good Dudley Durant stuff. Oh now. Evan Evan uh, absolutely was one of the best writers I've ever had as a as a teacher at Alabama, and uh, great things are still awaiting you, and you're doing great work. But we need to have you on sometime and just do a segment talking music. Evan knows his music, really. Well, I could do that. that. Was a uh, that, that, that was part of my life for uh, many your, years. I was traveling. Yeah, the tell, country just tell us your background. Tell, t- yeah, yeah, tell us your background really quick in music. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, growing up uh, as a kid, uh, you know, I was kind of a metalhead, listening to a lot of Metallica, Megadeth, getting to college, uh, getting to jazz, uh, 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 bluegrass. So I played in bluegrass, jazz, uh, metal bands, jam bands, uh, you know, all kinds of bands. Basically just, you know, I'm a guy who loves rock and roll, but also like good harmony and music, you know, so you can pretty much say my favorite band is probably Steely Dan. But, uh, you know, it's just I love music. I'm very eclectic, and uh, I played across the country, uh, you know, doing it uh, with various different groups. So, you know, it's something uh, I've always enjoyed. 
and the great wow. the great writers can hear the music in their head when they're writing. That makes them lyrical, and Evan has got that. Evan, thank, thank you so my much. My compliments from your former professor. Hey, I got I'm curious. What small town? What small town in North Alabama? I am from Hamilton. Oh wow! You're right over the next Mississippi border. Absolutely, I about uh, five ten minutes. Yeah, about five ten minutes from the state line. All right. Uh, thank you, Evan. Appreciate Thanks, it Evan. as always. You can follow him on al.com. Uh, when we get back, uh, we're going to take a breath and talk about maybe a couple of other things that uh, we haven't gotten to yet, although we've gotten to a lot. Covering SEC sports like Kudzu on the roadside, this is Big Noon Sports. Want to know what's going on with the Crimson Tide? Download the Tide 100.9 app today. Score! Everyone knows time is money. So don't wait weeks for the IRS to send out your tax refund. Go to Jackson Hewitt instead for up to $3,500 with a no interest. It's low 40. Tomorrow, another cloudy day, a soaking rain by afternoon, the high 51. And a brighter day Friday, mostly sunny, the high 48. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 44 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Back on Big Noon Sports, Lars Anderson, Matt Coulter, Christmas got the day off. We have uh, Josh and Joe and Aiden uh, on the other side of the wall, if you will. The other side of the glass, we say in the business. Um, we talked a little bit about Brady, not enough probably. D'Amico Ryans is uh, going to Houston. Sean Payton to Denver. Um, I could not believe when I got home that I was actually – looking at my phone to keep up with the Alabama game, I really almost slapped my phone saying, this can't be accurate. Because at that time, the game was ending, and it was 101-44, to and I went, there's got to be something wrong there. But the fact of the matter is, Alabama laid out every single bit of their frustration on the Vanderbilt Commodores, the final being 101-44. to Alabama wins by 57, their largest margin of victory in SEC history. They hit 19 threes. 19 threes. And they played D, which has been absent the last couple of games. Yeah, they look great. They look great. Uh, they look like a team that, uh, it's like, I, I, I said it yesterday, it's like it's like they had to get something out of their system, and they got that out in Norman. And uh, this is this is the Alabama team that that we have gotten to know and what that what we expect and and um, yeah I mean it was uh, <laughs> it was just a, a a great effort and now they're nineteen and three overall nine and zero in the SEC and um, you know you're coming off the the biggest uh, or the most lopsided win in school history in the SEC. And, um, I mean, hey, it was tied at five. <laughs> yeah, and then I think Alabama went on like a... 30, and they went on a 30-5 to five run. Um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, I think they just, they just got back on track. 
I mean, that's really all, all, all you can say. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if there's uh, much more to add other than just that, um, that, that the, this is what we expect from this team because they have that much talent. They have the talent to win a national championship. I truly believe that after paying, you know, close attention to this team. Um, what did you think of Brady's uh, video announcement that early this morning, just how short it was and to the point um, about him announcing his retirement? Um, I thought it was exactly what it should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, he has a big house. Did you see the one behind him? <laughs> ha ha. That was like some kind of billion-dollar condo. You, you know what yeah, I'm talking about? Yeah. There were two of them behind which, which led me to kind of believe, I wonder where he is standing and why he picked this place, yeah. which is really, really minor. But um, I think in his case, he can't do this in front of the media uh, just because he'd probably lose it, and he doesn't want to lose it. And I think as he very candidly pointed out, you know, I, I had my time last year yeah. when I did it. I don't, you don't uh, get a do-over retirement. Yeah. Plus, um, I, I think if he did it in front of a live media audience, he would get a lot of questions about Giselle. And I don't think that's necessary anymore. I think we all know where that is. Yeah. Um, he's going to get, you I know, mean, some it's... palimony in the amount of about $3 million a month. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, the, the fact that he went through a divorce in the middle of the season, uh, both you and I know, it's a, it's the one of the most traumatic things you can go through. It's hard to stay focused on the task at hand. Um, but... You know, I have talked to so many players over the years and uh, guys who are his teammates, guys who just went against him. I've never heard anybody say a bad word about him, ever, not once. And uh, I had, you know, a good bit of interaction with him for the book uh, A Season in the Sun, that sort of recap, it wasn't a recap, but it was an inside story on Tampa Bay's uh, run to the Super Bowl during the COVID year. And um, and Tom was always just very generous with his time. I mean, he's known in press conferences to really say nothing and, and, may, and, and not really reveal too much. But um, so I, I love his draft story and I wanted to share it. Uh, and and, uh, and I don't think it's like really well known, but so Tom grew up just outside of San Francisco. His his uh, dad was a season ticket holder. His first game was January tenth, nineteen eighty two, when uh, Tommy, as they called him, was four years old, and that was the the day that San Francisco beat Dallas in the NFC Championship. And that was Joe Montana connecting with Dwight Clark late in the fourth quarter, uh, in for the no uh, play known as the catch. And ever since then, Tom Tom Senior, uh, Brady's dad, hoped that his son would play for the 49ers. Well, when Tom comes out, the 49ers have four draft picks in the first two rounds, and they used all of them on defensive players. In the third round, San Francisco picks a quarterback. Who's that quarterback? 
Giovanni Carmazzi from Hofstra. <laughs> and this prompted uh, one of Tom's sisters. I think Tom has four sisters, and he's the youngest. Uh, one of his sisters asked, who's he? Uh, then the fourth round ends, and Tom still hasn't picked. And then they're starting to think, man, is Tom going to get picked at all? So in the fifth round, Brady, uh, the Brady clan, they were certain that the Cleveland Browns are going to take him. Uh, Dwight Clark, that same man who little Tommy had watched so many years ago at his first NFL game, was the Browns' director of football operations. Cleveland needed a quarterback. Clark knew Brady. He knew that Brady had uh, come off the bench and rallied Michigan and all that. And then the commissioner steps to the podium in New York and says, the Cleveland Browns select quarterback Spurgeon Wynn from Texas State University. And Tom was devastated. He just said, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. And Tom Brady Sr. said, Dwight Clark, unbelievable, you blankety blank. (laughs) And Tom then said, I got to get out of here. Uh, and then he uh, he just went outside. His mom and dad chafed after him. Tom was crying. They put their arms around him. And uh, I'll finish the story on the other side. But it it it, uh, it ends very happily. Also, many of you listening in Tuscaloosa on Tide know the answer to this. Great trivia question concerning Tom Brady and the University of Alabama. Ha! About that. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can... Welcome back to Big Noon Sports with Lars Anderson, Matt Coulter, and Christian Miller. Our draft coverage continues. It's New Orleans on the clock at pick 200, as we said, bottom of the sixth, end of the sixth round. And we talk about the teams and what they're looking for and for the players who are waiting to see if they will be drafted. Some are hoping that the phone call comes or their name gets mentioned in the next couple of hours. Others are hoping not to hear it. Maybe they won't be drafted, but they may have the opportunity to go to a situation that would best fit them as a free agent. So an anxious time for so many football players who are college stars. Among the last six picks taken, a uh, familiar name if you're a college football fan, Tom Brady, the quarterback who uh, all he did was lead this football team, put them in the right position more times than not. And when he got pulled from the game and Drew Henson came in, Michigan football was not as good as it was when no, Brady was in. No question, Like Smart experience this past season. He cut his interception total from 98 and a half, tossed 20 touchdown passes, only six interceptions. Through a touchdown pass, and actually all 16 games he started against Big Ten opposition during his career. Accurate. It was a very catchable ball. He really knows when to take a little off as well. And that's the key, and he stands in that pocket very tough. He'll take a hit. The question's going to be mobility. Only runs a 5-2-5-40. And, of course, when you have those edge pass rushers, you have to avoid the initial defensive end, the initial pass rusher. Can he do that at the pro level? Going to New England, Drew Bledsoe, his forte certainly isn't mobility. He's dropping back throwing the football. Brady can do that, and certainly New England's offense already designed for Bledsoe. Now comes Brady. There you have Tom Brady's draft, sixth round out of Michigan. And Lars was just talking about how a quarterback from Hofstra and a quarterback from Texas State was taken in front of him. 
Yeah, so this is, uh, I wrote about this in my book, A Season in the Sun, which is still available everywhere and uh, on Amazon, if anyone is interested. And, uh, and these details came straight from Tom, uh, really getting into what his draft day was like. And uh, it was after the Cleveland Browns, like he thought he was going to go to Cleveland in the fourth round. Uh, Dwight Clark was their, uh, I think, director of the, basically in, in their front office, director of football ops, and they needed a quarterback, and they took Spurgeon win. And that when, when that was when Tom was really devastated. He's with his family out in San Mateo, California, uh, his sisters, his mom, dad, and he just said, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. And he said, I got to get out of here. So he goes upstairs to his bedroom. He digs a baseball bat out of a closet, and he goes outside, and after a few minutes, uh, his mom and dad chase after him, and, and, and they found Tom crying. He was just, he was just devastated, and they, they, they both put their arms around him, and the three of them went for a walk through their quiet neighborhood there in San Mateo, and Tom told his dad, he said, basically they're saying that, that I don't look like an NFL quarterback. They don't think I can play. Well, back in Foxborough, the Patriots had no need for a quarterback. Uh, as, uh, as Mel Kuyper mentioned on that, that clip from the, the draft uh, in 2000, uh, Drew Bledsoe was firmly entrenched as the franchise signal caller. And in the sixth round, they, uh, they had the, the Patriots had the 187th pick, and they took Antoine Harris, a corner from Virginia. But Bill Belichick kept looking at the draft board, and he's thinking to himself, why hasn't Tom Brady been selected? He kept saying, uh, Belichick, Belichick kept saying to the room, and in the room was Jason Light, who was a scout for the Patriots, who would go on to become a, the GM for the Buccaneers. This is a very important point because Jason Light was advocating to take Brady, and Brady knew that. And so when Brady was making his decision of where to go after New England, that relationship that he had with Jason Light was is crucial. So anyway, Jason Light's in the room. But, uh, but, but Bill Belichick, you know, he's talking to all of his coaches in the room, and, and Belichick is saying, you know, he's a value pick, even if he never becomes a high-end NFL starter. Because, look, future all-pro quarterbacks simply don't go undrafted until the sixth round. But Belichick was, he kept saying, am I missing something? I'm missing something. And he also didn't know why the coaches at Michigan, where Brady had split time with Drew Henson for most of his senior season, that the coaches in Michigan just didn't seem to believe in him. But this is what the similarity between Belichick and Nick Saban. What does Nick Saban trust? He trusts his eyes. That's why he always wants to see a recruit before he offers a recruit. And Belichick trusted his eyes. And they had the 199th overall pick of the sixth round. And he told his personal assistant, uh, Burj Najarin, to call Brady. When the phone rings out in San Mateo, Tom is still outside trying to process uh, everything that was going on. Tom Sr., his dad, answered the phone. Then he hustled to go get Tom. And Tom says, hello. And 
This, Tom, this is Burz Najarin with the New England Patriots. We're about to draft you. I'll pass you over to Bill. And Belichick gets the phone, and this is how it all begins. Good to have you, Belichick said, before Brady could say a word. Looking forward to getting you here. We're going to work hard. See you soon. Hang, yeah, there you go. Hangs Bill. up. <laughs> <laughs> And and then Tom, just a few days later, at age 22, packed up his apartment in uh, in uh, he flew to California to Ann Arbor, packs up his apartment in Ann Arbor, and drove 11 hours to Boston, and then uh, he just kept thinking uh, about and, and this was one question that weighed on his mind more than any any other, what's it going to be like to play for Bill Belichick? And that's how it all began. Great story. Yeah. And, um, you know, they ended up winning six Super Bowls together. And Tom won a seventh uh, with Bruce Arians. And um, I think it was time for him to go. Or not go, but to retire. I agree. Um, I didn't think he was, though. Yeah. I had here, my doubt. Here, here's the thing. This is what I – this is sort of my thought on it was – the one place he could go would be San Francisco because it's his childhood team. The team is loaded. Brock Purdy now is looking at six-month rehab. You don't know what you have in Trey Lance. And this this is a team capable of winning a Super Bowl. You know, they got the offensive weapons. They got the defense. They got everything you would want. But apparently the only thing that Tom considered was staying with Tampa but now Tampa is completely in a teardown phase, uh, before, and then they'll rebuild it. You know, they just got they got rid of a bunch of their coaches, I believe, including Clyde Christensen, who we've had on this show, uh, the quarterbacks coach, and uh, and and you could see that Tom. I think he he lost a, a little bit of arm strength uh, in that final season, but in the playoff game. Uh, I thought, you know, even though uh, they were just getting blown out, uh, Tom didn't quit, right? Like uh, he he missed Mike Evans on a on a on a go route uh, that could have made things inter- interesting, but he he never quit, and uh, I think he's just uh, probably I'm guessing it was his dad who's his closest confident confidant. Um, I'm guessing it was his dad who really said, "Hey, son, you know, I, I, I'll be, I'll support whatever you do, but I think now is the time to walk away." And I think it was too. And the one thing about San Francisco too, if he moves out to San Francisco, his kids are in, his kids are in Miami. I mean, I, you know what? I don't think the common fan realizes the the family aspect of things t- uh, as much as they should. Well, you're separated a lot even when you're in the same city. Yeah. Um, and uh, especially with the way Brady works out and what he's doing. So uh, just, a, just a couple of quick things. Did you say Brady ran a 5-2-5-40? I did not say that, but that sounds about right. Okay. Um, that makes me feel a lot better because at one time I could actually tie him. Really? 525 is not very fast. <laughs> when you consider there are guys that run a full second faster. Yeah, and you've seen the the picture of him uh, at the combine with his shirt off. 
Does not look like he's he's not cut. an NFL player. Yes, but I'm, internally, I mean, his organs and, and all are just as fit as can be. Yeah. With the what you told me about his garage his, and his, his pliability he eats, and, and what he it, eats and he eats I guess really more importantly hydrate. what he doesn't eat. Yeah, he uh, he's constantly hydrating. All right, he, I'm gonna, he, I'm he drinks uh, more water than any human on the planet, I believe. I'm going to uh, steal this question because Joe Gaither uh, gave it to Gary Harris about three hours ago on Tide, our affiliate in Tuscaloosa. I and by the way, Joe. If, if you researched and got this as a trivia question, we owe you a, a cold beverage. Um, any, however you got it, the first and last passes of Tom Brady's NFL career were caught by Alabama players. How about that one? Mm. All right, so his last pass would have been caught by Julio Jones. Correct. Who would have been a wide receiver? This this, this one is tough. <laughs> and you just touched on it because it wasn't a wide receiver. I was going to dig deep And you weren't here yet, and you weren't following Alabama football closely. No. And even, uh, I think most Alabama football fans that were following the Tide during the 90s and, and, and early in 2000 remember this guy. He did not have a celebrated career. Do you want me to hold that? Josh, did you do you know or did you hear earlier the answer? If you did, don't say it. Do you know? I just remember during the broadcast they had mentioned. I remember who the first one, obviously remember of Julio. Yeah. But I remember during the broadcast during the game that potentially they said if he was retiring after, it would have been his first and last catch yeah. to Alabama players. Oh, you mean let you mean hold on to it for a while? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, uh, we got to get to break anyway, yeah. and we're gonna one uh, one quick note, Joe Burrow. One and zero versus Tom Brady all time. Well, and I guess he'll stay that way. <laughs> yep, that's right. <sighs> Gee, what, you didn't mention the Bengals by name, but at one eleven they finally popped out on one of the biggest news days, not involving Cincinnati. I like gigging you. Kind of. All right. Uh, when we get back, going to talk some coordinators. That's the one topic we haven't touched on today. It uh, one of many, uh, but. We will talk with Mike Rodak, who does an outstanding job. Again, we've got another AL.com writer on Big Noon Sports coming up. Covering SEC sports like Kudzu on the roadside, this is Big Noon Sports. The best sports talk in the state. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. The radio stations of Town Square Media Tuscaloosa want to make your big game tailgate party better with Pepsi. One winner will win a big game tailgate party with a big 60-inch flat screen television. Slow 40. Tomorrow, another cloudy day, a soaking rain by afternoon, the high 51. And a brighter day Friday, mostly sunny, the high 48. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 44 degrees in Tuscaloosa. We are back on Big Noon Sports. Matt Coulter, Lars Anderson, Christian Miller is um, on assignment, I guess you could say. He's uh, working with the athletic department and football program with some kind of uh, event that they've got here at noon. So 
He will uh, he will be back with us tomorrow, and um, very interested to get his take on the findings of today. I know he didn't play in the era of D'Amico Ryan's, but I think that's that's a that's a big story, and I I don't know how many people are familiar with his scenario. You know, he was not a widely recruited guy out of Jesslinier. He really wasn't, and and as I was told, um. It was Rodney Orr, and how I failed to ask him this when we had him on earlier. <laughs> Rodney Orr saw him at a high school game, and he made he made twenty seven tackles. And apparently, there was uh, information on his height and weight that uh, I it, they were misinformed. So, at this time, Rodney, I hope I'm not stealing this from you, but he called Fran. Dennis Franchoni, remember that guy? Mm-hmm. And he said, you need to go look at this guy. And he goes, well, he's, he's uh, 5, 10, 190 pounds. And he says, you, no, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> you need to go see this guy. So he was immediately given a scholarship, and literally the rest is history. Uh, because yeah. he was a sideline-to-sideline guy. And, 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 you know, he, made a, he finished Jess Lanier at 4-0. And then he graduated the University of Alabama with honors. All right, that being said, let's bring in Mike Rodak of AL.com to talk about Alabama and uh, coordinators. Hey, Mike, how are you, man? Doing pretty well. That was a good story. That's the, the first time I've heard of that. Man, I mean, things things definitely change in 20 years. I don't think anybody's calling up Nick Saban and saying, oh, you better go check out this player. He's going to be taking a helicopter no. to go see them themselves. <laughs> Nick would have had eyes on this guy somehow, somewhere. But anyway, it is a good story, and it's only true because it was 2000 and not 2023 where this guy would have been known by every major college football program in the nation. That being said, I'm just going to throw it out there, roll it out there. Mike Rodak has all the information. Who are the next coordinators at Alabama? <laughs> I only wish I could provide that right now, but it's, it's definitely um... – I don't say it's taking longer than I expected, but there's definitely some more twists and turns than I would have initially expected, really, on both ends, um, offensive and defensive. And, you know, it's, you know, on, on the offensive side, it, it was pretty clear that they seemed to want um, the Washington guy, Grubb, and, you know, semantics of whether he was actually offered or whether there was, you know, significant interest or however you want to kind of phrase it. There's obviously something there, so much so that he, flew from Seattle to Tuscaloosa. Um, you know, what exactly broke down on that? And I know the Seattle newspaper, well, I'm sure, talked to people in Washington then said that they didn't even talk about money. But you'd have to imagine that a guy who's making $2 million at Washington and could probably be a head coach in a couple of years somewhere, um, you know, is not just going to leave for a, a big pay cut. So I would imagine that was part of it somehow. Um, but there's also the aspect of, you come to Alabama, you're running Nick Saban's system. You're learning his playbook, just like Bill O'Brien had to learn it for Mac Jones. And um, you have to wonder how much that plays into this as well, where, you know, as a coach who's on the rise somewhere, do you really want to cede that much control about your career um, to Nick Saban? Not that they don't trust him, but just from the, the aspect of you're running his system and people are still going to blame you uh, if things go wrong. Mike, I'm really intrigued with uh, Freddie Kitchens. Is he in the mix, according to your sources? And also, journalism question. You are such a good reporter. 
how do you do reporting on the coordinator searches? I mean, I know you got to work the edges, but uh, I, I, I'd be just curious to know, like, how how you try to figure out what's going on inside of uh, Malmore Athletic Complex. Yeah, two good questions. On the first one, I mean, nothing – and I guess the second question sort of leads into the first question. I try to be conservative with kind of what I say and what I report. So in this case, I can't say with any sort of – journalistic certainty that Freddie Kitchens is on their list or is interviewed or going to interview. I can't with any certainty say that, but yeah, it's one of those things where it's tough because like, as we just talked about, you know, back in the day, you might've been able to in the eighties, seventies, nineties, whatever, pick up the phone and call some of these coaches or just walk into the building as some guys used to do. And I've heard all those stories and, you know, it's much, much different these days. It's a little fingerprint lock on the door to get in and then um you know keypads and numbers and there's probably 20 different cameras and everything it's it's fort knox they had to literally get into and then b you're not picking up the phone and calling nick saban i mean there's a small group of reporters that i think have that privilege if you will and you know chris Lowe at espn is obviously probably number one on that list so um as far as yep. directly getting from saban that's just not going to happen um, you know, so you're, you're trying to kind of work around like the edges, like you said, in terms of where these other people are, are there people, like, can you talk to them directly, but people who know those people at different schools that, um, might know something. And, you know, like I said, I, I try to be conservative. I don't have it firsthand from somebody I, I know knows I'm not going to say anything. Um, so that's kind of where I am on that one. And, you know, I think people have different philosophies, but I, I try to stay conservative there yeah uh I, and i think that's a great lesson for young reporters like you, you should stay on the conservative end when it comes to stuff like this and also i think the ryan grubb story maybe got spun a little by the seattle reporters okay i'll just kind of leave it at that <laughs> because it wasn't anybody right, in right. tuscaloosa re- re- reporting that uh he, he turned down nick saban and that an offer was made uh that, that you know that that would shock me uh if a comparable salary offer was made and he turned it down i i just that that would shock me uh okay defensive side of the ball um it's pretty amazing that 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 Saban is is looking for two coordinators at the same time, you know. But then it, it doesn't take that much research to figure out that no coach in history, I'm guessing. I mean, I at least in the 2000s, but I uh, or this century, but I'd probably say in history has hired more coordinators than Nick Saban, so he knows what he's doing. Uh, do you think? Um, well, just your thoughts on the defensive side uh, and maybe who he would be looking at. Well, yeah, I guess the point you just raised is is good, too, in terms of looking at how he's hired in the past um, because it's just on both sides of the ball. It's generally been people who there's been a history with that have either been within the program already or were previously in the program in the case of you know Sarkeesian when he was there and then left and then came back. I mean, Loxley was already there. I guess Dable wasn't, O'Brien wasn't. So the recent history is a little bit off there, but they still had the Belichick connection, which I think allows them a lot of uh, familiarity. But Pruitt was already there. Um, 
you know, Kirby was obviously kind of within the system. Can you stick with Pruitt for a second? Is, yeah. Is, is, is Pruitt – where is he with the sort of the, the NCAA uh, issues that he had at Tennessee? Would Is he, like, a viable candidate? That – I mean, it's, it seems to be all over the map with what you hear in that end, um, where at the beginning it was no – probably not going to work out and then it goes to yeah I mean, it it could work out it seems like it might happen and then it kind of swings back more recently to it eh, not so sure about that um that one's a tough one to pin down i think it part of it is just because of the ncaa process like even guys who you know cover the ncaa on a national level the pete thamels of the world it, you don't really get a great sense of what they're thinking in terms of penalties and a, what's going to happen, and B, when is it going to happen? How long is it going to take for that to happen? And I, I don't know if Alabama really has like a great sense of that either, just because of the NCAA's kind of secrecy and what they do. So I don't know if there's a strong answer from what the NCAA will do. Then there's the question of the SEC. And obviously the SEC, I think, kind of is careful not to explicitly hold people back but we kind of know in practice that's sort of how it works, and that's kind of how it works with you know you freeze for a while. So that's a tough one. I, I think it's yeah. If, if everything was clean, you'd probably already be the defensive coordinator right now. But it's not clean, and yeah. where does things lead from there? I mean, Todd Grantham's name does seem to come up after that. For me, it's you still have to look at positionally. What are they trying to do? Like they move pretty quickly to bring in Austin Armstrong, coach inside linebackers, because that's that doesn't spend his entire history, and he's young. I can't imagine he's going to coach safeties. They have no safeties coach. So are you, are you going to have to reorganize things? I mean, Todd Grantham's a front seven sort of coach. Could he coach safeties? Yeah, he has more experience. But it, it was in my mind a week or two ago, you're thinking, all right, the safeties coach is going to be your defensive coordinator, which kind of leads you to Jim Leonard. But, I mean, Jim Leonard might be an NFL coordinator at this point. I know a lot of Green Bay people, I think, are – clamoring for him up there so i don't know that's, that's a tough one as well obviously you know the pruitt domino has to fall first and then who is it after that right now it seems like Grantham would be the the favorite but i don't think that's a, a set thing either mike i think a lot of us saw today you know the second signing date first wednesday in february as kind of the point in which nick saban would really start moving on this and we all know that he has before. Long question short, what do you think? A week? Uh, we going to hear something? Just your best guess on how long it's going to take Nick to name these coordinating positions. I would say the next two to three weeks. You know, There's no recruiting need to have those guys in place right now. You know, There's no re- recruiting that's happening. And then spring practice doesn't start until the end of March. So I don't think there's an immediate need to get them in the building other than trying to get a guy from the outside up to speed on your system. My gut tells me that he wants Pruitt, and I think he's willing to wait a while. Is, is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. I think there's some thought, you know, on my end there that, you know, if the, way, the longer you go, the harder it's going to be to bring somebody in. Like I said, he hasn't really done that too often. I, I guess he did it with Pete Golding. But to have somebody learn from the ground up what you're trying to do, that's tough. So if you wait longer and longer, I think you're going to lean more into people that you know, already know the system. Which, in that case, 
Todd Grantham's been around too now for a year. Like I think he can find his way around the building, so to speak. Uh, but Pruitt could as well. So in either case, the longer you wait, I think the more you lean into somebody you know. Mike Rodak. Mike Rodak, we appreciate your time as always. Catch him on AL.com. How do folks follow you? You can find me on Twitter as well, at Mike Rodak. Good deal. Hey, thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you probably next week. Really good stuff, Mike. Thank you. Thanks. All right. See you. We haven't stopped the guest list yet. This is big. But we will now. You a happy new year from Townsend Honda. The new year brings new Hondas. Come pick out a new Accord. We have 20 new Honda Accords in stock. Plus, shop the best. Lars Anderson, Christian Miller is taking the day off. We'll be joined shortly by Andrew Bone, who has a lot of uh, information to pass along. It is recruiting day, signing day, which I'm not sure that's a big deal right now. Hey, Bone, how are you? Okay, I guess he is not there. Um, Hmm. What I wanted to ask you about, Lars, is very quickly, because we'll have time here, is... um, Kyle Trask or Blaine Gabbert? <laughs> okay, just, I'm, I'm really not asking you that, but they got to see what they have in Trask. Yeah, uh, I he just, has not. I don't. He has not looked good. No, he uh, uh, When he has played, he has uh, looked pretty good. It, it he, he looked pretty good against Alabama a couple times. But uh, here are things that I'll just throw at you real quick. Uh, Jaden Rashada, the quarterback at Florida that was evidently, according to the reports, uh, offered $3.4 million to play his football there. You know where he's going? Texas? No. No, I don't know. I thought Miami was in the mix for a long time because I think they had made an offer. He's going to Arizona State. Yeah, I swear to go. Is that weird? Yeah. Um, So... That was uh, that was one of the things I'm going to throw what about, out. What about uh, okay? So D'Amico Ryan's gets a six-year contract, right? Which uh, that's the Texans showing big-time commitment to. I him. agree. Is he now a possibility to be the next head coach at Alabama? You know that follows in your <laughs> list of questions. Um, you know. Uh, if he has a lot of success there, I would say, heck no. Yeah, he stays in the NFL. You know, if he plays about 500, you know, and then it becomes up, you know, yeah. comes available, then, uh, yeah, I could see it. No, and, and But Col- if you're an NFL, if he gets them to the playoffs in, what, two years? Two or three years. Um, I, I think he's going to have a very long and if, successful yeah. career it, in the it, NFL. It all depends on if he hits on the quarterback. And they're they're drafting number two this year. This is be the year to do it. Uh, if they are really in love with either Bryce or C.J. Stroud, I think you would make a move to move up to number one and to make sure that you get your guy because somebody is, I think, going to move up and uh, get that pick from the Bears. Um, but right now, I think if the Bears keep the pick, they take Will Anderson. One would think, and I, that's also 
as mentioned earlier in the show, it might be a possibility even with Houston because D'Amico's a defensive guy, and um, I, I think all reports would indicate that Will Anderson Jr. is going to probably be a, a dominant force in the National Football League. Yeah, but I, I think when you are drafting this high, you know, number two, this is your chance to get your quarterback for the next 15 years, and that's the most important player for a new head coach is – like, you know, again, they go back to the Bengals. Zach Taylor, uh, the Bengals got the first pick his second year, got Burrow. He hit on Burrow, and Zach Taylor is going to be there as long as Joe Burrow is, right? And uh, that that is what creates longevity in the NFL is if you hit on your quarterback out of a, a kid that you draft right away, right? And um, so... I think it all. This draft is huge for them. They have a lot of draft capital uh, over the next two years, and they also have a lot of salary cap space. I, I believe the the ownership there is not afraid to spend money. Uh, so I think that's why the job was more attractive in Houston than in Denver, because in Denver. Not only uh, <laughs> you're, you're you're saddled with an old quarterback, right, for the next two years uh, in Russell Wilson, who he did play a little bit better toward the end of the year, but he was just pretty awful for the mo- most part of last season. But his contract is so big and uh, so cap unfriendly that you have to ride with him in 2023 and 2024. And if you have two more, if you have two bad seasons uh, with Russell Wilson, you're you're gone. And also, can't, uh, the, uh, the the Broncos gave up a king's ransom of draft picks to get Russell Wilson. And 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 now that they got Sean Payton, they had to get up uh, give up another first round draft pick. I um, <laughs> it's like what what are they doing? I don't know, but I, I'm telling you, it's, um, the, it's the Walmart family, right? Uh, In, uh, the, yeah, <laughs> or the fa- yeah, what? Yeah. What is the uh, Walton? Uh, uh, Walton, Sam Walton, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, the, I just the, don't understand what, the entire what the heck situation doing. with Russell Wilson is about as puzzling as it gets. But from some of the things you've seen on social media. It seemed very apparent to me that he went to Colorado and adapted a Colorado lifestyle. Read into that what you may. But do you see the big, huge house he brought, bought? I mean, he's living, he's living the, 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 the Denver life. Well, when I you mean, get he's not three, $350 million guaranteed or two fifty, I don't even know. It's just outrageous <laughs> how much it is. Um, <laughs> Denver did not get a good return on their investment last year. I mean, that's the one of the worst investments in the history of the NFL. It may it? be the the worst trade in the history of the Meanwhile, NFL. the best trade in the NFL was made this year as well with Christian McCaffrey. With McCaffrey, yeah. Uh, he dang near got him to the Super Bowl. I hate that Purdy got hurt in the NFC Championship game. I uh, wish, wish we could have seen um, a healthy Brock Purdy and if San Francisco could have come back. Because it's almost like when they knew that Purdy was out, uh, the entire sideline understood what it meant, and what it meant was that they are going to lose the game. <laughs> well, I guess they were right. Um, earlier in the show, we posed this trivia question. Tom Brady completed his first pass in the National Football League and his last pass in the NFL 
to Alabama players. We'll answer it afterwards. And also, I got to address the situation with uh, the junior varsity high school girls basketball coach in, in Virginia. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but she dressed out and played against 13 or 14-year-old. Wow. You're listening to Big Noon Sports. Back in just a couple of minutes. This is Big Noon Sports with Lars, Matt, and Christian. The radio stations of Town Square Media Tuscaloosa want to make your big game tailgate party better with Pepsi. One winner will win a big game tailgate party with a big 60-inch flat screen. Slow 40. Tomorrow, another cloudy day, a soaking rain by afternoon, the high 51. And a brighter day Friday, mostly sunny, the high 48. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 45 degrees in Tuscaloosa. We are uh, taking in the last furlong as uh, we wrap up the Wednesday edition. It's the first day of February, Lars. Why not? And I knew it was coming, obviously. I, I do keep up that much. But I went, where the hell did January go? I mean, because it just seemed like uh, New Year's Eve not too long ago. But anyway, earlier in the show, we were talking about Tom Brady. His first, first and last passes were caught by... Alabama players, former Alabama players. And um, Julio Jones, we all know, 70-yard touchdown pass. That's cool. But it's a, it's a real difficult question to identify the first one. Because, first of all, he's not a wide receiver. He's a tight end. And uh, he did not gain a lot of in, uh, He did not become famous in the NFL. In fact, he's probably better known for his career at Alabama. Anybody got a shot? You're disqualified because you looked it up. I'm not talking to Lars. I have you no... Know. Rod Rutledge. Do you even, does that name even ring a bell? Nope. All right. He was a tight end. I think he was taken in like the second round. He was uh, He was a good draft. He just, I think, I heard earlier, and again, this was on Gary Harris's show through Joe Gaither. I think somebody said he had 27 career catches. 27. First one from Brady. And what, Josh, what were you telling me? Somebody said, did he keep the ball? <laughs> how, would, how the heck funny. would you whenever know? He was interviewed about it. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody Later said. On, whenever he was interviewed about it, they were asking, did you know that this was going to be his first catch? Because there's the very first pass was a drop. The second pass, another drop. Third pass completion, but then there's the Patriots penalty. So technically, it was his third official pass because of the penalty. It wasn't the fourth one. But it was that third pass that was a completed pass. And if it wasn't for that penalty or those incompletions, then it wouldn't have been the Alabama player, Rod Rutledge. Huh. Well, oh, asking him if he thought it was going to be. Somebody's got to have one heck of a crystal ball yeah. to know that this so guy's going to win seven Super Bowls. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in my trophy case right now. How much do you think it'd be worth? <laughs> seven <laughs> figures? Oh, yeah. Um. Okay, very disturbing story, and unfortunately, I would just go and grab one, say the same one. Uh, uh, you know, they they have ways of trying to document that, and then you know, as uh, I've picked up a few baseball cards and base autographed baseballs in my life, and I, I remember somebody telling me, 
I said, well, it's got a letter of authenticity. Well, if they can fake the autograph, they can sure as heck fake the letter of authenticity. Right? Yeah. All right, this story coming out of Virginia. Junior varsity basketball coach Arlisha Boykins, age 22, had one of her starting players off on uh, you know, one of those uh, club basketball teams. She's 22 again. She suited up and played a game against the 13- and 14-year-olds. How many points did she, did she score? I kept looking it. I kept looking it up. Now, there was some video, and she was playing hard, blocking shots and putting putting them back. At one time, I think, and I didn't see the video. I read about this. She dove into the stands trying to get a basketball. Uh, there are so many wrongs to this, Lars. First of all, if you're the other team's coach or you're the other team's players or you're, you're the officials, I guess – have you seen a picture of her? Could she no, pass for she, 13 or 14? I, I haven't, but don't you think somebody would have known? <laughs> By the way, if she was recently the coach on the bench, wouldn't some of the fans, would, wouldn't somebody notice this? And that was the thing, because she even used a player's name. So she was acting as if she was one of the players. Yeah. And so there had to be a lot of coordination into it. It's just, mm. why? What, what are you smoking, lady? Yeah. Oh, it could be some uh, psychological issues going on there. there. There must be, unless, you know, there was some kind of a bet to see if she could do it. I hope it was worth her salary because she's gone. They, I think they went ahead and fired the high school varsity coach, too, which leads me to believe maybe she had a part in it, too. Yeah. But she's there. Don't most coaches go to their JV games? She had to have allowed it, right? Yeah. And the parents of the girl who she was acting as was out of town. Right. And once they found out and the rest of the team found out, all the other players on the team agreed to cancel the rest of their season. Yeah, and that's just maybe the shame of it all. I mean, those girls don't get to finish the team because some, I say adult, and I lose the, I use the term very loosely, uh, made such a huge, poor, awful judgment. Um. Agreed. Uh, I don't really don't have much more to say about that one. But D'Amico Ryans, uh, you covered him. And uh, what was it like when you were able to, to talk to him? Um, certainly uh, almost like a self-made player. You know, he was just a, a three-star recruit. Yep. Uh, and uh, he became the SEC Defensive Player of the Year in 2005, and um, he was the defensive MVP in the 2006 Cotton Bowl when uh, Alabama beat Texas Tech 13-10. to What a ball also, game that was. And he also won uh, the Lot Trophy that year uh, for his combination of athletic excellence and off-the-field achievements. And he was recognized as a first-team All-American. I mean, that's a pretty impressive resume. Goes on, picked in the second round uh, by the Texans, and becomes the Defensive Rookie of the Year, went to two Pro Bowls, and then was traded to the Eagles in 2012, where he spent four seasons before retiring. So... Uh, the D'Amico Ryans that you knew, Matt, just uh, described to us uh, what he was like. Well, he was obviously a very bright young man. 
uh, good interview, you know, very well spoken. Um, but as a player, I just remember kind of watching him develop, and it didn't take very long into this. Um, let me see some guys I could uh, equate him with. Um, he was in on every play, you know. Um, he knew no boundaries. I mean, he certainly respected the sidelines, but um, he went full tilt all the time. And then getting back to it, he just had what you call a very high football IQ. And I think a lot of people on the inside recognized it. Who was it you quoted earlier saying they thought they he would end up being a coach and being a coach for a long time Yeah, uh, at the NFL level? Um, well, he is, and I think he's ascended to that level about as fast as he ascended as an All-American in Alabama. Uh, once he started, and there was an article earlier that I read, and he said he just he knew how to learn. You know, absorb, mm-hmm. and and he did. Uh, boy, if I've ever been pulling for a coach for um, another team, any uh, NFL, it certainly will be for him now. Yeah, and he's only thirty-eight years old. Gee, I mean, uh, to become a head coach at that age, and I know that is sort of the new trend. Uh, started with Sean McVay, uh, and uh, you know uh, his whole coaching tree, but. 38's young. That is young to be a head coach. I mean, I remember just about 10 years ago, the, the, the average age of a, of a first-time head coach would be probably about 47, 50. Uh, kind of like it is at major college football programs. Yeah. You don't see a lot of really, really young ones anymore. So uh, It was, uh, was a big deal. And as you noted earlier, six years, McNair's appear to be giving him the reins yep. and and they're going to have to do that because they have had the Houston Texans now with the hiring of D'Amico Ryans have had five coaches since 2020. That's incredible. And I think he will bring stability. And um, like I said, I, 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 I believe that, they, they got a hit on that second pick in the draft, and it's got to be a quarterback, whether or not it's Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud. Who would you take? Take your Alabama, take your Crimson yeah, Colored Glasses um, off. You know, I always think that I would take Stroud just because of his stature. I think I would take And Stroud. his arm strength, yeah. too. More built for the NFL. But then I start thinking about Bryce Young's magic. He is magic. It's almost like... Bryce Young is the better player, but I would probably lean Stroud because he can his body can hold up in the NFL. Because when you get to, it'll be interesting to see what exactly Bryce Young measures at the combine. Is he six foot? Is he five eleven? Is he five <laughs> ten? We've always wanted to know. I guess now we'll find out. Talk to you tomorrow. Today on Hey Culligan, reverse to reduce. Here's Bob. Hey Culligan, I love fresh water, but I got plastic bottles coming out. Whoa, Bob, you are not kidding about the bottles, but do.